from the Crystal Gondola in SIS in Net Valley, Shenzhen. Shuko International School. It's Our Mind on Music. Our Mind on Music. Episode. This is episode nine, my Pokey, friend. Pokey. Holy. Jeez, we can Pokey talk. Pokey Dina. I didn't know you could talk so much. So the basis of this concept is uh, Everything is a Remix by Kirby Ferguson. Yeah. You teased this in the last episode. Though. I sure enough did. Sure I did. was thinking this. Oh, yeah. Kirby Ferguson. Perfect. It's fun to say. That's a fun name. Has he got a Twitter handle? say that. I think it's probably Kirby Ferguson. <laughs> the real Kirby Ferguson. <laughs> well, the real Kirby Ferguson, please stand up. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> so, you had suggested maybe we could just call it, Is Everything a Remix? It's really provocative. And then we won't even answer the question at the end. It'll just leave it out there for everybody to answer on their own. No. After saying that, I don't feel like I want to say anything at all. Just... <laughs> Thank you for watching. Let's just stop it right there. It's been a good episode. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, so I think is everything a remix? Um, and I, I had this idea. Watching, I, I mean, if you haven't watched uh, everything is a remix, just go onto YouTube. It's fascinating because it starts off with literally remixes. So remixes of songs, right? So, and when and when you and I think of remixes, we're going to think of maybe the dj takes the song and like puts a, puts a beat below it or you know for sure puts a beat below it yeah yeah or um you know takes the takes a sample from the original uh original cut i i think of um, the bass riff from under pressure ding, 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 yeah, ding, ding. That but that's in completely different than the vanilla ice one because you've seen the interview with vanilla ice explaining this right oh no i haven't they're do tell okay so queen the bass line goes dun 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 uh -huh. And he said, mine starts on the pickup note. So it's Oh, that's right. Actually, I have noticed ding, that ding, before. Ding, 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 Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. Totally different. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how people can confuse those two things. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's good that he clarified it, though. Yeah, well, it's good. So, so the, but we're not just talking about those kinds of instances. No. So remix in this remix theory, as as I'm understanding it. So the concept starts out, it starts off literally with a remix of a song. Right. Most remix... Kind of to set the context, right? Right. Exactly. Just a question. Do you know what the most remixed song is? Of all time? Yeah. No, I... Oh, go ahead. I, I didn't know. I, I looked it up because I thought it was Apache, which was a, a song from the 1960s. Um, right here. I'll play a sample of it. Right here. But no, I looked it up, and um, there's a song called Amen, Brother by the Winstons. That's the most remixed song? It is. And... It's funny because there are lots of claims on the internet about it, about that being the most sampled song. I'm like, what is your source? Like, so if somebody is listening to this and says, no, no, it, it is Apache or it's something else, please let us know. But mm -hmm. um, uh, according to a couple as usual, of, be respectful because we want to be educated. So Kirby Ferguson starts off with uh, literally remixes of songs. Right, and shows how maybe drum loops are used in songs from different time periods. 
and then goes into like sort of covers of songs so led zeppelin covering old blues songs and then just keeps on expanding it until this point where you're like how did we get here again you know and and it's just amazing how it's really really well done really well thought through and at this point really well developed mm -hmm. so i started thinking about this like how could we talk about this without saying everything that's already on the internet about this right mm -hmm. and so i started started to think about what exactly does that mean based on what i just said it's not literally a remix right, right. so i wrote down this list and you can tell me if you want to add stuff to the okay. list okay so first of all is technology which is using sampling and remixes um like what we just talked about and i'll play a couple samples of of those things where you can hear the drum beat from one song used in another song like hip-hop started to do that a lot in early yeah. days you know well and even we've talked a lot about phil collins and hugh pagdom and, and the drum sounds from the 80s mm -hmm. and you know a lot of that was used and reused and reminds me funky cold medina yes that song by tone Loke, right is that jamie's crying from van halen that could be jamie from the future here again uh the song is not tone Loke's funky cold medina it's tone Loke's song wild thing and it does use a sample from van halen's jamie's crying and actually there was a sampling dispute over that um tone Loke was sued by van halen van halen was paid originally a very small amount thinking that the song would not be a hit when it became a massive hit in the day, they went back and re-sued for a larger amount, and there was a settlement made. Wild Thing by Tone Loke, with a sample from Jamie's Crying from Van Halen. That's a great opening riff from a song. See, we used to look for those when we were when we were trying to sample drum sounds. You'd look for those clean intros, yes, or yeah. or even bass sounds or whatever whatever it is that you wanted to sample. I've wondered I've wondered at times if people nowadays think about that, like they don't start a song with just a beat now because it's too easy to 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 like maybe steal it, you know? Maybe. I wonder if people sit in the in the studios and think. We could start it off with the drums, but then a thousand people are going to use it. Or we should start it off with the drums because then a thousand people will use it's it. It's funny because when I was writing with my writing partner back back in the day, mm -hmm. um, we specifically avoided those kind of like drum intros. Really? Yeah. Wow. We would start. We would we would want to start with like either a keyboard or a guitar or something that that, and it. But I I mean we weren't consciously trying to avoid people sampling things. We just thought that it was kind of a cliche to. To start with a drum beat. which is so funny because now now you think about it and it's like i would want people to sample my music i would want people like it's, right it's, it's an a, homage it's well it's also it's a thing on instagram and TikTok sure. and all that stuff it's all remixes of things right yeah so like you can duet things you can remix songs you know all right so the th the reason i like the way you're going with this is because just simply because it talks about more than just remixes or or uh, cover covers of, 
of original song. Right. So let me go through the list. Mm -hmm. So there's the technology or technological use of sampling and remixes. So I take a portion of a song and I use it either to create a new version of that song or I use it to create to add to my new song. Right. So I create a new song, but I use the drums or something from the other song. Sure. There's covers, which have been around forever, right? Literally, like um, Liszt wrote La Campanella, right? Mm -hmm. The Little Bell, La mm -hmm. Campanella. And then Paganini did a violin adaptation of it, right? Right. So did an arrangement for, for violin. And the guys around to Paganini and said, is it just going to do covers for the rest of your life? Come on. <laughs> no, after that, he built his own studio and... Uh, Oh no, that was Eddie Van Halen. The Sorry, studio? that was that was Diver Down. Diver Down. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> and and so so that song I used that one because covers have been around forever. Paganini was doing an arrangement of that song, so that's what we used to call them. Mm -hmm. Now we call them covers. Black Pink just used that same song in in Shutdown. <laughs> Down. Which cool. is their their huge hit that's had fifteen. That's made them billions of dollars. Already, yeah, you know? they're retired, by the way. I uh, know. So, I think they are just, they out of retirement. Well, they just did the comeback tour. Okay. Or they're on the comeback tour, and I think it's you know I think okay. so I think I'm relieved. Oof. For a moment know. there, I thought the one of the biggest selling bands of this year might be going you know, into seclusion yes. or something. Tom, Tom, going Tom Brady, as it the, were. The recluses that they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Blackpink um, Shutdown is their song, right? But it uses that song. My kids are walking around our house singing La Campanella. Yeah. And they know that, but a lot of kids around the world are singing dun, 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 and they don't know they're singing something by Liz. So this comes back to Francis. something we talked about in the last episode, which is where, you know, like Midnight Blue and uh, Hooked on Classics and, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny doing opera and mm -hmm. classical and stuff like that. The Barber of Seville. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know the Barber of Seville from anything. No. Except for... It's for funny to think now, having studied music and having t teaching music and all that stuff, but to think, yeah, actually, the reason I knew some of those pieces... That was the genesis. It was because of Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Right? Okay, and so there's that stuff, right? And then there's parodies. Like, mm -hmm. I'll name Weird Al because yeah. he's famous now, but parodies have been around forever. Happy right? birthday to you. You live in a shoe. You look like a monkey. And you smell like one, too. Parody. Parody. Done. Done. Okay, I think uh, it just feels like there are so many good points here. We could just cut it at any moment, and we'd be, we'd be good to go. Right. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh play. yeah, you you mentioned memories last time, but I don't think it made it into the, the into the episode. Uh, Maroon Five's memories. Oh, okay, yeah. So memories that um, wasn't in. It, I remember discussing this with you last time, right? Yeah, because my grade six class is doing that. Yes, that mashup. So we don't even call them like we used to have medleys where you'd play one song and then you go into another one, like the the Stars on Forty Five kind of thing. You remember yeah. Stars on Forty Five? Yeah, Stars on Forty Five. Yeah, and they would they would work like. Um, and they would work in other songs. Yes. And suddenly it's the Beatles, and then it's something yeah. else. And but now, <laughs> what a concept! I just 
the things we did back in those days, right? Oh, back in the day. K-Tel. K-Tel. Remember K-Tel? They would, like, clip all the songs down to, like, two minutes or Oh, under. yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of our albums, again, like, all of this kind of stuff, it comes back to, like, why, when I was growing up, did I know the Beatles? I mean, I was born after the Beatles. I, I was right? the same way. They, I, You know, I was born during the Beatles' heyday, but, I mean, of course, they were kind of, they were broken up by the time I started being aware of anything. Right, right. And I heard, I heard their stuff. They had an album. They had like a greatest hits album where they were there was a blue one and a red one I think. Oh, I where they were looking, albums. where they were looking out out of an out apartment of a balcony. Out, yeah, yeah, I love those albums. In fact, uh, my sister Margot had those two. Uh, I think I think maybe Loretta had one and Margot had another one. I can't remember, but and I used to just take them out of the out of the sleeve and just look at them because yeah. they were like oh what do you right they're translucent. translucent yeah translucent. that's right I forgot about that. So the white album was white and you couldn't see through it at all. It was solid like a black album. I never owned a white the white album. Not the, not the actual LP. I never owned it. I've seen it. You've seen it. But the blue and the red were amazing because they were translucent. So. I think the Beatles in our household, I grew up in Southern Alberta, they must have been like verboten or something because I never laid hands on a Beatles album until later in life. Wow. They were massive in our... I mean, it wasn't like a, a reverence kind of thing. They were just part of what, what my sisters played and I grew up listening to it, but... That would be part of the reason I knew the Beatles growing up, but part how, of it was because like stuff like that that included them in the in the stuff, you know. How much of the Beatles do you hear in Elton John, Pink Floyd, Yellow, um, you know, all of those artists of the seventies? You know, it's incredible. It's, yeah, exactly. The so, line. So that's I haven't even gotten through my list here. All right, but uh, so you can use chords or melody lines from a song to create a new song, mm -hmm. which is not the same as sampling the song, because if no. I play, like, okay, so we mentioned uh, Memories by Maroon 5, it's the same chord sequence as uh, Packle Bell's Canon in D. You know what makes me drop a song quicker than, than, than a hot cake? A hot cake, is when <laughs> I play the song, especially for, for, for our band, mm -hmm. and I'll go, hey, I got this new uh, song I'm working on, and they, and they go, and they, and it sounds like a, the melody from another song, and they'll sing that melody in my song, and I go, oh, geez. oh okay, man, there you go. Oh, she goes. And and it's funny because I wonder to what extent some artists do do that on purpose, yeah, or um, would like be really happy that that happened. Yeah, a happy coincidence. So I've heard about, and I don't know exactly um, how this works, but I've heard that basically there are songwriter teams in um in the world now who are trying to see to what extent they can copy other <laughs> songs without being a suable amount right. of use they got a team of lawyers so in the background going oh on. that one that one is um open for public use i've got um, some views on that but we can get into that later but I, I i wanted to uh maybe you could drop something right here because you've got maroon five memories here mm -hmm. why don't you do like a back-to-back -back of Taco Bell I've got a, I've got a mashup actually that I prepared for my students. Oh, throw it, throw that down. Okay, I'll do that. It's right now. Uh, hold on, wait for it. And
So if you listen to it, it's exactly, I, I played it in MIDI format, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you listen to it, I played the MIDI, so it's not great sounds, it wasn't the point. It was so that my students reference could reference it. And also I do that on GarageBand. So I print off the notes All right. that they then play. Yeah. So when my students play it, they're playing literally that, but sounding good because they're actually using cellos and violins. Right. And then <laughs> I took a sample. Uh, it was like- Have they done it yet? Um, they're working on they're it working now. On it. Yeah, they haven't presented it yet. So we'll have to yes. come back to that Revisit in a later this. episode. Yeah. Um, so what I did was, you can go online now, I don't know how many people know this, you can go on to even Google and just Google um, the name of a song that you like or a singer that you like and acapella or vocals only or, you know. Did you know that? <laughs> that was like Dora the Explorer. <laughs> We're gonna go to the <laughs> farm, that's right. <laughs> Those in there. Sorry. <laughs> so that's actually a great way to go. Okay, run run through them a little one. bit more of the list. Last here. one. This is so technology covers using chords and melody lines mm -hmm. um, in a new song. Um, songs that share the same chord sequence, but I put. But you got one here: common influences, which is really important. I think. Yes. Okay, common influence, but I think it's the same thing because, like, there are situations where somebody like Ed Sheeran at one point was sued by somebody because they said that he'd used a chord sequence from, was it like Sam Cooke, I think? Um, yeah. I, I believe yeah. it was Sam the, I think it was perfect. Okay. Actually, it was Thinking Out Loud and Let's Get It On, which was a 1973 hit for Marvin Gaye. Okay, and, and so the argument was, well, you don't own the chords or the chord sequence for that matter. I mean, if that was the case, then Oh my goodness, like, if you take rock and roll with the one, four, five pattern, if you take... Um, How many are there? One, six, four, one, six, one, four, minor five. Six, minor six, four, five, yeah. right? And like, yeah, and I mean, one, four, five, everybody would have been sued by Beethoven, uh, theoretically. So... <laughs> hey, can we just do a little aside here? Okay. Um, when we were talking about Beethoven the other in the last episode, one thing I noticed, um, just, it, it's not the first time I noticed this being a part of his music, but I think it was the first time that I sort of realized that he was probably one of the first guys to do this. The, the intro to Eroica, we played it and we're just like, wow, wow, what a great intro. Mm. You know what's in there that I don't think occurred at all, if much if at all before Beethoven, was the push. You wanna explain what the push is? Yeah, please. The push is where you've got a one, two, three, four, it's just an and somewhere in the uh, lots of ands, okay. right? So, so you're going one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. And he's doing that. So like a syncopated. Yeah, and but he's, it's definitely got to be in some other music, maybe uh, folk music or something like that. But that was an element of Eroica that you just don't hear in Bach or or Mozart or any of these other, they're, they're, they're very linear. They're very, very on the beat. There's no yeah. syncopation. There's no. Yes, yeah. And there's tons of it in Eroica and I think a, a lot of other Beethoven stuff. That's interesting. Yeah. I'd love to the go. The push in a band is the thing, right? Oh, there's a push here. Then we, yeah. <laughs> you know, so everybody knows what that means. That's really funny. I mean, yeah, because what you're, what you're, the sample that you're doing there, what I'll do is I'll go back. Um, if I'll go back and I'll play the, like a part of Eroica again, mm -hmm. not to overdo like us playing Beethoven, you know, but right. 
Um, I'll go back and I'll play just a sample of that so that people can hear what you're referring to. even put it against a reference like i did, I did find a modern reference would be great like a rock song that has like pushes great yeah. they, they, they would do shots you know on the, right. dr the yeah. drums and everything would play it all on the same uh syncopated beat yeah there was a there was a song that we talked about in one of our episodes that was like that it was it was the the, um, the police oh yeah <laughs> they yeah. do a little <laughs> yes yeah right before the right before the one is that one one two three four and everybody does it exactly if you nail if you nail that and you know so the pickup the pickup note for the next bar yeah okay the last thing on my list like we're we haven't even started discussing the things on my list i'm just trying to get through the list yeah get through it would you Jeez, louise so there's common influence which you mentioned mm -hmm. um the schumann's we'll come back to that a little bit but something like um paul mccartney one time was um somebody was had I don't think it was like them trying to sue him or something. It was like in a talk show. They, they said it sounded similar. They said, yeah, that, that sounds like the chord structure from this song from... George Harrison got sued and he said something very similar for yeah. Oh My Lord. Yeah. He said something similar, which is that I wasn't... He's So Fine was the song that... Yes, yeah. as if he's trying to... To rip know, off, yeah. It doesn't make any sense, but right. he lost, right? Or or maybe they settled it after like I 10 think they years settled. or something. Well, you know the one, the, the band that got really messed about with that was um work. men at work for their big song um what for for um, um who can it be now or for down under down under because that flute part yeah somebody claimed that it was um kookaburra kookaburra sits in the old gum tree which i don't even think it's that similar to be honest to me that they sounds lost. like public domain well i would have thought that too they lost and they lost. he um what's the name of the guy from men at work Colin Hay. Colin Hay. Oh yeah. my, have you seen his stuff? That's a like, singer, man. Well, that guy is His recent shows, like when he just does the acoustic stuff and his voice and he's telling stories and... Yeah. And he's, he's funny. That's what it is. very funny. I don't know what he'd be like in person, not on the stage, but I see him doing that and I think I would love to sit down. He's hanging out in New York now. <laughs> he's in New York. Okay, yeah. well, I can't do an Australian accent, so that helps. Hey, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so... He got sued, and he apparently can't use that that um, flute part. Are you serious? When he does that song now, oh, that album is. I listened to it the other day, man. That's a great album. Oh man, great song my sister that. and I, my sister Karen and I, used to sit down and listen to that album. Anyway, so and then there's the other part is the part that I think is for me the most interesting one, and you brought this up with Eddie Van Halen. Um, Having your own taking voice. aspects of a composer's voice. Oh yeah. Or like the style, the sound, something that feels like a composer, ancient, modern, whatever the, the time period, and then just sort of building that into what you do just because it's such a strong influence on you. Yeah. And we just talked about Paul McCartney and uh, George Harrison and Ed Sheeran. Wait, back to back to Eddie. You know, we were we were talking last time about how um, like why Bach, you know, why would it be sound like Bach? Actually, Mozart was probably the reason because Mozart was heavily, heavily influenced by Bach. Yeah. And also we talked about the, the piano last time it came out around 1700, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Mozart was like, what, 1750? 
born or when was he born? 1756. Yeah. So, but Mr. Greenwald. Hi everyone. A couple of times here in this episode, Leon's going to mention Robert Greenwald. Actually, we should have been mentioning Robert Greenberg, who has the podcast that we refer to and that we listen to and that we've mentioned a few times. Robert Greenberg's podcast is well worth listening to. Not just the episode that we mentioned later, but any episode, it's really good stuff if you're enjoying listening to musical analysis. The, the, the guy that we talk about a lot, he says that the way Mozart wrote wasn't as expressive in terms of dynamics as Beethoven, even though he wrote on piano, because he was still heavily influenced by the harpsichord, which was not an expressive instrument at all it was pretty much just flat well it's also because he was in the classical period whereas beethoven right. you said and i agree with you yeah. was basically the father of the romantic period right there are people who are going to disagree with that or say no no but what but they're wrong right well we we're right so we have to uh, they don't have to be wrong they're but. wrong uh, <laughs> so no but my point my point being is even though he was writing on piano he didn't write as expressively and he also used a lot of the, the Bach, uh, had a lot of the Bach influence still. Yeah. I, Is that, yeah. Am I right or am I wrong? No, no, I, th I think that's probably true. Oh, oh. I think you know the answer. Uh, okay. <laughs> this hand, <laughs> the right hand. <laughs> I, think, I think probably it's, it's the concept of what makes um, a song great, right? Like his idea of what made a song great would have been the complexity. I mentioned in the last episode, if you could hear through the hissing and all that stuff that was happening. In you the mean the ocean board, sounds? The ocean sounds that we added. That was very nice what Thank you added you. in there. Thank you. I wasn't sure if... If you hear any of those now, it's because we're recording this always by the ocean. Uh, always by I think his concept of what made it great would have been complexity. There's a great scene in Amadeus again. I keep on going back to this, but I love that Which movie. is all false, right? Well, not everything. Like, a lot of it... I'm just jerking you. Oh, man. Is it a good enough movie to watch? To watch that movie? Yeah. If you haven't watched that, watch it. Watch it. Watch it. So I don't think his idea, when he was creating those those pieces, he wasn't trying to be really expressive because he could have definitely done that. His What he was trying to do was when he sat down with Salieri's piece of music in this one scene in Amadeus, I can see this. I can imagine something like that happening, right? Not that moment, but yeah. something like that where he said, oh, you did dun, 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 dun. And could you do you know and just right. add all these flourishes and add all this kind of stuff that would have made it a lot more complex and he would have thought that's what i'm aiming for right right so he wasn't thinking in terms of uh pianissimo and no he wasn't thinking dynamics he was thinking complexity more Or notes yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mozart. Mozart was definitely noty he was noty he's very noty which is also i would say I mean, it was notes of mozart so the notes, the 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 too many, sorry, too many notes here, Mozart. Yeah, that's also a Bach influence. You said that one of your criticisms originally listening to Bach was that yeah, and, too and many notes. Amended, amended criticism. Yeah, that's why I said original. Yeah. Okay. I just want to clarify. We're friends now. We're not. We're not arguing. It's not a versus. By the way, I won that battle of Bach and Beethoven. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt, baby. All right. Okay. So. Oh, well, let's so see here. You've got what you've got down here is nice, um, and just to clarify, I said at the beginning I did the research here. Jeremy did all of this, and I it, I owe this to him being a a teacher at heart. <laughs> Everything's uh, you know it's got point 
point things here. But Bach-esque using Bach's voice, which Eddie Van Halen, which we just talked about, Beethoven-esque, the Billy Sorry, Joel can, thing. Can we go back a little bit before? Because sure. I, I do want to get to the Billy Joel. I think that's really interesting yeah. what, you, what you told me about that. The Eddie Van Halen thing, just to explain where we're coming from with this, because it's something that I had never thought of in all my years of being a massive Van, Eddie Van Halen fan, mm -hmm. right? I loved his create creativity, his just the way he picked up the guitar and thought of it differently. Mm -hmm. And what you said fits really well with that, but I never considered why did he play it so differently. What did you say about Bach? You said... Oh, yeah, just that to me, it, that influence was... was is just on all the because all of the uh, the hammer-ons were didn't exist really before him right and those are harpsichord hammer-ons it, it did exist before him but it wasn't done the way he did it. not the way he did it yeah yeah so it's all arpeggiated chords yeah so if you take three notes in a triad eruption play eruption right play that, it, for me that's that could be a harpsichord piece exactly right i used to do it on organ yes yeah uh, exactly and the live show we did it on on organ well what's funny is um i used to um, I used to play in a band when I was in Kazakhstan. I used to play in a, in a cover band, and we did jump, right? Mm -hmm. And so we used to start off. The, we had a keyboard player. He used to play the part, and then um, we'd get to the solo part, right? The keyboard solo, the, or, the, or the guitar solo. Well, that's the thing. The guitar solo. I thought, okay, it's it's nice and it's really well written. Eddie Van Halen once said it was his favorite guitar solo that he yeah. ever wrote. It's very unique. Uh, in my opinion, it's just way out of the box. I love I love the solo, but what I actually love about that song is the solo section. What Alex Van Halen yeah, does with the drums. Ga, ga. Speaking of syncopation. Yes, exactly. So the syncopated drum part. And it goes to B-flat minor, too, which is just like, what? What does he think? But You're in C. Right. Which, okay, so all of those things. But now that you've said that about him having something like Bach in what he did, yeah. I thought back and I thought... Oh yeah, and so, what's interesting about that is he doesn't in that section he also doesn't stay in C, he runs it down from B flat, right? And the end at the end of that solo he goes mm -hmm. B flat in the in the bass. I mean, mm -hmm. he, but he still keeps playing. He, yeah, he still yeah. keeps playing in in um, in the key of C mm -hmm. on the right hand. Uh, uh, oh, it's the uh, what it is? It's the da -da -da, that's the G to the G that the octaving part where he goes G C D G. Up and down, up and down, okay. part. Yeah. and then the left hand is going B flat A, A flat G, and then back to the C, and just the way that he resolves that, it's incredible. It's yeah. really, and it's very classical. Totally, actually. I was going to say because I could totally explain what you just said in terms of going down to the G, which is the fifth, the fifth note in the key of C, yeah. right, and then going from the fifth, resolving to back the tonic to the again. And back to a, like a, yeah, a big C note and that so the song starts with. So you're not going to miss it. Nope. You cannot miss that he goes from the fifth back to the back to the first note. Yeah. And then he goes, and even that, like, isn't the bass? Bass stays on C. And uh, well, until the right the hand hand it goes G, up. though, isn't it? The right hand is G, G chord. It's just G, C, F. Yeah, G, it's still in C. C, F, F, F. C, G, C. Right. F, F. Uh, and then you change and the does, bass. But he does, he does a sus chord there too. Yes. Anyway, but... Okay, so the point is, when Eddie Van Halen was playing the guitar... You see how much of an influence that one song had on you and I? Yes. Guitar and keyboards? Yes, Both? absolutely. Well, I told you before, like, one of the reasons when I first started playing music, I was playing the, the piano, right? Doing the Royal Conservatory of Music. Um, and I wanted to play guitar because I thought it was cool, but I thought, well, yeah, but you can't sort of do both. And mm -hmm. then... 
Eddie Van Halen comes along and what you can blows, blows your mind. Yeah. yeah. So like any for me, Eddie Van Halen and Thelonious Monk were reasons that I moved in different directions. You know, mm -hmm. huge influence. And Speaking I, of um, aspects of a con composer style, that one thing that that wasn't in here, you've got some good, very good examples here. Um, Boston, foreplay, long time. Mm -hmm. Have you heard? You, you, you've heard it, right? Yeah, did it. Can you play it? It's you can play it. Just the organ, organ intro, and it's oh, it's yeah. broke. Okay, let me play that. That's just, I mean, the way that you wrote that, that's Tom Schultz that's playing that. He's a guitar player, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So speaking of guys that like to, you know... Uh, Play different instruments. Switch and, back and yeah. forth, yeah. And then he hired a guy to do that. But anyways, you've got... Um, oh, okay, you've got Innocent Man on here. Okay, so Billy Joel. So when he was a kid, he was taking classical lessons, him and Elton John both. And Elton John, by the way, you want to talk about Reg Dwight, Reginald Dwight. He went to a, uh, I, I think it was a boarding school or something where he actually studied music. I, I could be wrong. He was a very good student. They, they interviewed his teacher. She said he was incredibly talented. And, and, uh, not, and not of a course. Surprise now, right? Yeah, but, but when you listen to, especially like a, we always go back to that first five years with the, uh, yeah. with the London Symphony Orchestra behind him mm -hmm. and the way that he thought about the chords and the, and the, which, it's a simpler form of counterpoint, I think. You know, the way that he played with the bass chords and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, but very, very classical based. You can you can hear it. But he also fits in blues. He fits in gospel. Mm. All that yes. stuff. And then his voice is just, like, incredible at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but Billy Joel also studied classical. And his mom would ask him. He, he would, he would trick, trick his mom by playing. I love this. <laughs> his mom would say like what's that you're playing there this is on a 60 minutes interview you, you got that here that's good mm. where he would imitate especially Beethoven because he could do a little he could do Beethoven motifs mm -hmm. that were not Beethoven songs yeah, exactly <laughs> but that would fool his mother yes yeah. into thinking that he was studying a, uh, a a Beethoven song and then he did it uh, in the interview right so the interview yeah the interviewer said well, can you can you show us something and he goes oh totally here and he plays a little little bit of a Beethoven-esque right thing which I love that to me that's the essence of what this actually is because there are really obvious things like if I like again if I sample something I take the drums from something another thing for you okay so there's an episode of, of uh, David Letterman where he wants to play there's there's a, a an audience member that's going to an Eagles concert, okay. and, and his husband can't, her, this lady's husband can't go, and David says he'll go with her. So then he wants to play, he wants the band to play, the Eagles, an Eagles song, okay. And the whoever it is off to the side says we can't do that, it's too expensive. Oh, <laughs> the producer, says, we can't play any Eagles songs. I want to hear an Eagles song, and he goes, well, if you wanted to hear an Eagles song, what would you want to hear? And it would, they went through this whole thing and uh the long and the short is, is it was like two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars to play life in the fast lane wow so they right. found the cbs crew that was working that mm -hmm. that show found a version of a song 
that was a knockoff of Life in the Fast Lane. And then the band plays it. Uh-oh. So they play the song. And, uh... That band was amazing, though. Wasn't oh, it? Will for Anton Fig. Will, uh, Will, Will, Will. What was his name? The the, the, the bass player, player Will. Will Lee, Anton Fig, Sid McGuinness, Paul Schaefer, and Will Lee. 1993, Paul Schaefer and the world's most dangerous band. Just incredible musicians. And then they had David Sanborn on there all the time. Anyways, holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so back to Billy Joel, um, an innocent man. You mentioned. Go ahead. Yeah. So you told me the story about how he used, uh, Billy Joel used to trick his mom into thinking he was practicing the Beethoven or the Mozart. Yeah. The fact that he was able to imitate their sound rather than playing one, yeah, of, their, one of the actual songs. Yeah, like, you know, he's not playing Fear Elise, but instead he's like playing something that makes his mom believe that it's Beethoven. Like, I think that's a much higher skill, right? Yeah. If you look at Bloom's Taxonomy, do you know Bloom's Taxonomy? Yeah. So if you look at the different command terms and like, are you imitating... Or are you like creating something new with it? Right. Like that's that's super cool. You know, we just sit down at a piano. He's got a classical album, I think, at least one. Really? Yeah. So after he sort of retired from songwriting, are you talking about the? Um, you mentioned I didn't read this somewhere. It was I put it in the notes because you had said it. But Billy's here. You mentioned Leningrad and and so it goes from right. from yeah. Those are... started off, I think, as oh, so they're not classical actual like they're not when you say classical do you mean him playing like beethoven or no 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 these are these are actual because the leningrad da, 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 it's very beethoven-esque and 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 so it goes da, 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 da. also like sort of a piano concerto okay type. let's put them in right here So there's a classical uh, piano player, Igor. Igor Levitt. We used him in our last episode. Yeah? Yeah. He did a whole thing of, of uh, the Beethoven piano concertos, the whole, the whole that, that's repertoire. Why I used him for Pathetique. D okay, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I mean, just the recording is great. His playing is great. Yes. Really expressive. But he also does a podcast. He's, a, he's an educator. Really? Okay, so I mentioned in here, you mentioned Billy Joel and Van Halen, and I thought, I gotta throw something in, or else what am I doing here? You do, you threw something actually, I think, far exceeds it, which is Queen. Queen. So, Queen has... Bohemian Rhapsody gets a whole episode from Robert Greenwald. Jeez On this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, Robert Greenwald. Yeah, he, he, he does a whole episode on... on um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. It's on the it's on the anniversary. I think it's the forty uh, fifth anniversary of the of the recording or the release or whatever. Okay. Yeah. I mean, great Definitely story. Check too. it out. Yeah. So, what I was thinking about was when I listened to Muse. Muse is the epitome of 
classical rock. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they they perfected it, it's, and the guy's voice too. Yes. I mean, Just and operatic. I've, heard, I've I've heard and I've read things criticizing them because why how because it's like they're trying too hard, and I'm like. What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. What does that mean? If you're why would you not it, try? Why would you not try as hard as you can? Yeah. Like, well, you have to be. I, I don't know what that means. One thing that I about his vocals. It's not annoying at all. It's a trademark. The breathing. Have you ever checked That's that out? Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. right there. Like. Yeah. It, it adds it's to almost like a. It's almost like a like like a, a gasp. You know, you're coming out of the water and you yeah. haven't breathed. You know, haven't breathed for yeah. I think it adds to long. the intensity. I totally agree with you. Yeah, and it's funny because I I love Dream Theater as well. Jordan Rudis, um, yeah, is but they're a bit more of an acquired taste. Yes, you know, in terms of that's exactly where I was going with this. I love them, yeah. but I can understand how in a in rush, in a rush sort of way, right? Excellent musicians, mm, excellent songwriters. And really, you know, out there in terms of like the way that they put put everything together. That's a I, I hadn't thought of that comparison strangely, which I probably <laughs> should have. But yeah, that's a really good. And you find that a lot of the people that like Rush also like Dream Theater. That makes sense. You, you know, they really. I mean, overlap. because Rush is one of those ones that I liked. Do you find Rush classical? Do you find any of their stuff that has? Oh yeah, of course. A the connection trees. to. I mean, it's literally classical guitar. Right. Like, I think Alex Lifeson, because he was in a band of three guys. Two of which were, in my opinion, top of their genre. Top, if not like some people might say in the top two, three, whatever. But I think top of their of their instrument. Right, I was going right, to say right. So uh, Neil made the cover of, of Bass Magazine and Drum Magazine for like twenty years in a row. Right, and then the guitar world. has Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like we had a discussion. Our band the other day. This is way off topic now. Okay, we had a, Rocky who plays guitar in our band. Rocky and Bullwinkle or. No, actually, oh. Rocky is a guitar player in our band at uh, Terrace. Have you ever been there? I have been there. Yeah, I've spoken with Rocky. We okay, so Rocky, I'm just going to throw in before, interrupting your story, but Rocky's a guy who plays the guitar extremely well. But actually, most of his life, he's been a drummer. He's a better drummer than he is a guitar player, which blows my mind. Which is a, almost impossible to be. He's so good. He and I sat down like you think we talk about music i'm talking to the fourth wall yeah let's let's bring it in here hi there so <laughs> leon and i like to talk about music whether the camera's on or not whether the i talked with rocky one time for roughly 45 minutes and our friend scott um about guitar picks and the size of guitar <laughs> the size of guitar pick and how that affects how you play tell you so he sat down with my son one day who's totally into Minecraft. Oh, wait. See you later. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Didn't mean to be rude there. Did you notice my Movember Mo? Ah, nice. Just Actually, I'm working on it. I'm going to shave it into a form here in a couple yeah. of days. But anyways, my son, he sat down with my son, and they're going through all of the woods available in Minecraft. And he's naming it based on guitars. Yes. Rocky's teaching him, like, this is the kind of guitar. Yeah. And, and Lincoln was fascinated. So anyway... Rocky, uh, the uh, guitar player slash drummer, and our actual drummer, Jasper. Mm -hmm. Who's also fantastic on the drums. Amazing. Yeah. So, but he's always worried because he's, he's worried that uh, Rocky's going to get bored with playing guitar and take over his job. <laughs> I got to tell you, Rocky came over here one time, sat down on the drums, and I was playing bass. Uh -huh. And I was like, I got to up my skill, dude. <laughs> he's just 
incredible. Time, sig si time signatures mean nothing to this guy. That's the thing. He's he's like we're we're jamming out, and he and he suddenly goes, "Let's do five four. and I'm like, "Okay, uh, switching, done." And we we switched right, but yeah. it was just like seamless, you know. So we say, here's the challenge: <clears throat> build your own band from the from the past. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Who's your drummer? Who's your bass player? Who's your guitar player? That's Who's a... your keyboard player? Who's your singer? This is a market you could build because they have the the for the sports. Yeah. What build are they... your teams, right? Yeah. What do they call it? The, like the fantasy fantasy fan team. fantasy. Who's football? your fantasy band? Yeah. Okay. Me first or you first? Oh, geez, I'd really. I, it what, could be a collaborative genre? effort. What, what genre are you talking about here? We don't pick a genre. You pick your band. You pick your musicians, and then here's the thing. But my musicians. What Rocky did. What Rocky did is he built his band around, for example, he, cho he chose Neil Peart mm -hmm. for his drummer. So he built the rest of the band around that. Who would you put on bass with Neil Peart other than Geddy Lee? Uh, Jasper, I think, chose uh, John Paul Jones. And one of them chose, I can't remember, I think chose John Bonham for the drummer. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Eddie Van Halen made it for guitar, but okay. yeah. but later on, we I asked I asked Rocky. I said, "Well, what about Pat Metheny?" Mm -hmm. He said, "Wow, that would be a cool band." Yeah. Well, Neil what Perry. about Alan Holdsworth? Yes. Like that's what I would be thinking. I'd be I'd be thinking like sort of out there people who, you know. Okay. How about we just challenge the the folks back home? Yes. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking when we post this, we should put this as as a question. Post your fantasy band. Yeah. How about the rule is this? Can't have members from the same band. Right. You can't say... That's the only rule. My my dream combination is Alex Lifeson, Getty Lee, and Neil Peart. Yeah. That would be the best. Not allowed. Not allowed. Eh, eh. Can't do it. Eh. <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry. That was a total... <laughs> Let's go back now. Now that we've done a typical... Leon and Jeremy skipping around, looking at talking notes and saying, no, we're going to start at the last point. <laughs> I got something to say. And it's about, it's about this. Well, well where were we going to go? What were you going to do? I was going to go to Glenn Gould. Because okay. oh. actually, for me, um, I mean, I watched uh, Everything is a Remix, the, the Kirby Ferguson thing. Kirby Ferguson? Kirby Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kirby Ferguson. The I real Kirby Ferguson. Yeah. <laughs> on YouTube. But when I saw this interview with Glenn Gould from 1966, I knew um, even like early days. So Glenn Gould being from where I'm from. Canada. Can well, not Toronto. Toronto, right? Like, yeah. And so... Do you guys say Toronto? Yes. You do? Yeah. Where are you but, from? From Toronto. Toronto. You know. So... <laughs> I don't even know how to spell that, but T-A-R-A-N-A. Yeah. Toronto. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know at what point in my life I started saying Toronto. I don't think. I think so you could be more clear for the people that you were Maybe. I've wondered that because it wasn't a conscious thing. But I also know that my family is Guyanese, right? Okay. So growing up, my mom never would have said Toronto. Of course, right. She would have said Toronto. So maybe... I just started saying it. I don't know. Glenn Gould, 1966, has this interview, um, and he just chatting. Like, he didn't... Apparently, he went back later and wrote this essay about this moment, actually. Right. Uh, it's called The Prospects of Recording by Glenn Gould. It's, mm -hmm. it's like 
a great essay you should read. Mm-hmm. In the interview, um, he just comments on how he found that playing live, playing concerts, do touring and all that stuff was really limiting for him mm-hmm. because you have to play perfectly mm. every time. When you sit down in front of that audience, they want to hear you play note for note. Yeah. You're and playing the gold. Ex- expressive markings, you know, to the T. Spot on, you know. So the, the Goldberg variations that he did that made him... I mean, lots of things made him famous, but that was it's a really famous thing for him to Keith play. Jarrett has one of those, too. There you go. Thanks for playing Keith Jarrett last time. That was awesome. Yeah, I like that. That was really... It was a good call. You played two. I couldn't resist. I started listening, and I was like, <laughs> How, which one do I use? Are I you kidding me? Like, I know. It's incredible. Um, so precision. And this guy, Glenn Gould. Like, live, there's so many guys that are okay with, with, with doing... You know, like Keith Jarrett is a perfect example of somebody who wouldn't... I mean, he did an entire improvised concert, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Have you heard it? No. It's from the 70s. No. Maybe you can find it. It's, it's just, the entire thing is improvised. Glenn Gould comments on um, this recording thing, and he's saying, I, he says in the interview, just as an extension of what he just finished saying about how he found the recording really liberating. So much love for recordings. Because it's the future. It's the future for music. It's the future for performing music, it's the future of writing music. It's the future for listening to music. All of our futures in music are involved with recording. The concert hall, as, you, as we know it, is... It's dead. It's dead. Well, the festival hall's doing quite good business in London. The New York Philharmonic Hall is doing quite good business. Well, I don't know whether you're a gambling man, but don't put your money on it, but it will still be doing good business in the year 1999. Well, I think that we're in a moment of transition in, um, in music right now, and I think that the listener, for the first time, at least the first time since the Renaissance, or the earliest days of the Renaissance, perhaps, has suddenly realized this, has suddenly realized that he indeed can throw his weight around, the very great power that is being given to him. I think it's the power of... Um, making decisions that are in fact incorporated into the performance and ultimately into the composition of music. He's making those decisions in effect. He is in fact uh, allowing his decisions about A channel and B channel to be interpretive. He's making conductorial decisions. He is in fact supplanting or supplementing the choice that I as a performer would make when I choose an instrument and say that's a good instrument for playing Richard Strauss or a good instrument for playing Bach. The, the listener is in fact helping me make that decision because... And so he mentions here, he says, I actually copied it, it's in the future, it, it's just the transcript yeah. from the video, but he's saying, I can't pic- picture people in the year 1999 <laughs> going to a Tchaikovsky concert live. Oh gosh. I picture them experiencing that in some recorded situation, right? Wow. Where, where the people could then do things in some way using tape man- manipulation or something, they could make decisions that a conductor would usually make, like on dynamics or which instruments play at a certain time. He's talking about remixing. Oh my God. But wait a minute. He's not, to me, that sounds more like the metaverse. Oh, wow. That's oh, what it sounds like to so me. Yeah, it's even further than... Yeah. What did we talk about in our video game episode and the one before that when we talked about uh, Emer Noon conducting a 3D virtual concert with mm-hmm. Maria Callas yeah. singing, which they used clips and they used... Sponsored by Nintendo. Sponsored by Nintendo. And uh, Angelina Jolie has been chosen as Maria Callas, <laughs> right? Yeah. This, this is true. Fantastic. 
But that 3D concert, again, and we made the comparison to the to the met, the metaverse mm-hmm. thing. Nineteen sixty six. Yeah. Like wow. Holy cow. So he was watching Star Trek, obviously. Was Star Trek even out yet? I don't know. Probably. I don't know. Like, isn't that crazy? Like, so Glenn Gould, I just, I had to mention that. That's pretty visionary, I gotta say. And it says, actually, um, Sony Classical did this series. I like the part after this, though. Oh, sorry. It had not occurred to me that this statement represented a particularly radical pronouncement. (laughs) 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 Poor guy. I totally, like, he just said it casually to to the guy, right? Yeah. And the guy was just like flabbergasted. Yeah. He's like, "What are you talking? What? They're not going to go." This guy see- is a witch. I'm in the state. And and yeah, Glenn Gould is just like I. I didn't really think I was saying anything ground shattering, earth shattering. It was just just a comment on what what things might be like in the future. For me, what I heard was what I do as a hobby. It's what I do on my free app on my computer, GarageBand. Yeah, I take a song. And I take the, like we just said, I mean, I played the Canon slash Memories mashup, right? Yeah. It's uh, Adam Levine. Adam Levine from Moon 5 is singing. I took his vocal and I mixed it with Packledell's Canon. And then I made some little adjustments because one of the cello players wanted something a little more challenging. So I added in some stuff myself. Yeah. I'm I'm rearranging (laughs) Packledell on a free app on my computer, right? Yeah. That's what he was talking about in 1966. Yeah. And okay. you could have also done that on your iPhone, for God's sakes. Yeah. And I have done it, actually. Yeah. So, sorry, just uh, he said, um, so in he did that just as an offshoot of what he had said in the interview. And he was just talking. And then the guy questions him on it. And apparently there was a whole just kerfuffle. Because kerfuffle. he said this? Because he said it. What's your language? I'm sorry. I, so this is a family podcast. I'm verklempt. Okay. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. This is um, hey, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Perhaps I should do a British accent. Yes. Well, there was a bit of a kerfuffle. Like talk amongst yourselves, eh? <laughs> I was thinking when I saw this interview with Glenn Gould. It's uh, I forget the name of the guy, but I'll I'll put his name on there, and I'll put it in the notes. But he he literally looks at the camera like this. He says, "Good evening. We're here tonight, ready to speak with Glenn Gould, concert pianist." Recording artist, generally believed to be a genius. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Glenn Gould goes in and he writes this this essay, and it starts off as the first paragraph. In an unguarded moment some months ago, I predicted that the public concert as we know it today will no would no longer exist a century hence, and its functions would have been entirely taken over by electronic media. The thing and about it's a different time, right? So, so a couple of things like a, so Glenn Gould, I think to a certain extent, we're talking about 1966, right? Yeah. Two years before Woodstock, right? Yeah. So a product of the times as well. He's a classical musician living in the 60s, yeah. when the hippies are starting to form, right? So the quirkiness of his little chair, the the fact that he's thinking this way about looking to the future of what that could possibly mean, and he's still talking about playing Tchaikovsky or mm-hmm. playing classic classical music, but he's looking at it out of the box. Right. And I think that's just a product of the times, really, you know. But not a composer, right? I don't know, actually. I don't think so. I don't...
So after some research, I discovered that Glenn Gould actually did compose a few pieces between the late 1940s and the early 1960s. One of them was the Glenn Gould Bassoon Sonata, which he wrote in 1950. Here's one little excerpt from this. This is Junko Kudo on bassoon and Mitsutaka Shiraishi on piano. he looked at it like he wanted to play Bach or his way exactly so like Leonard Bernstein conducted when he did the Goldberg variations right and he was like basically just I'm trusting this guy because I know he's a genius and so I'm just going to go with it trusting Bach you mean no or trusting Glenn Gould Glenn okay. Gould because yeah. he was like a lot of people have criticized there there's a thing that's going around on on the internet right now on YouTube and stuff saying there's a, a critic saying I, I think it's disastrous. I don't hear Bach, I hear Gould. Teddy Roosevelt has a great quote about critics. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena. Um, so Glenn Gould, He's just having this interview in 1966 on television with this guy who was talking to him about that. And he's saying, I, I, I just found recording was so much more freeing. I could play something and stop and think, no, I want to I want to do it this way. I want to change it. And he could go back and he could do variations. Um, so Glenn Gould, he's just having this interview in 1966 on television with this guy who was talking to him about that. And he's saying, I, I, I just found recording was so much more freeing. I could play something and stop and think, no, I want to I wanna do it this way. I want to change it. And he could go back and he could do variations. Okay, but hang on. Did, did he explain why he groans in his recordings? He did comment on that. Actually, what did he, in, say? he said, I wish I could stop the, the singing along. And I know it's very distracting. And as much as the sound engineers try to block it out and stuff, like he doesn't go in It's depth. not all there, but he, you can definitely hear it. He... He commented, he said, I wish I could stop that, but right. he couldn't. He just And isn't it interesting that despite that, he got as far as he did? Yeah, well, you I know. The, the whole You'd thing. almost think that that would be a, a, non, a non-starter. I think, because we're talking about somebody who... Thelonious Monk did it as well. Well, yeah, in, in the later years. I mean, yeah. um, if you watch uh, um, Straight No Chaser, the movie, the documentary about him, they show how in some at some point later in his life, he would get up in the middle of like the song and start just walking around the stage, okay. you know. And so Charlie Rouse is on the saxophone and he's playing away, and and they're just like, "What do we do? Keep playing, keep playing." What you is know? this music in the brain stuff? Is this from that book, Your Brain on Music? Um, no, no. I made the I made the comparison. This was something that I found on the internet as well, and it was so it's it's the same concept. This is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin. Yeah. I was looking for references and I found this image that I loved that I'll it's very good. It's showing as we speak. Can I can I just say yeah. very quickly so Sony Classical did um I think it was 20 interesting facts or 20 things you didn't know about Glenn Gould. Uh-huh. Which is great. You should just look up that. But 
one of the things was um, Glenn Gould fact number 12 was um, the development of digital recording was partially what led Gould to re-record the Goldberg, Goldberg variations in 1981. Okay. Oh, digitally. Digitally. So when... 1981? Yeah. That's what it says here. What was available for digital recording in 1981? Computer... Wow, I'll have to check out. I don't, I don't know exactly. I think it would have been um, analog, would have... analog to digi digital tape, like the the Fostex. Um, oh, so he would have no oh. the ADAT would have that was no later. ADAT was no then. ADAT was later, but like that concept. So nineteen eighty one. Oh, so maybe what you're saying is because the CD was out maybe at that point was it? I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. Okie dinos. Um. So he he asked himself he because he had done the Goldberg variations became very famous and and very controversial because he was doing his version of a classical song like, right who does that you know yeah glenn gould does yeah but what details could he include with his new technology with this new technology how much more perfect could he make his recording so he loved the idea i mean in a way for me he was looking at classical music with a jazz sort of bent he was also looking at it in a se in the sense that our friend Warren, that we interviewed a few episodes back, mm -hmm. looked at technology, which is the technology wasn't owning him; he was owning it. Yes, right. Yeah. Really good point. Yeah, yeah, totally. He was saying, "I'm not afraid." I can of be better. Yes, I'm not afraid of this new technology. I don't think this is gonna like. He, he mentions in his essay as well, the prospect of recording by Glenn Gould, read, really worth reading, because he says a lot more interesting stuff than what I'm saying here. But he said, I think this is typical of a lot of people that they're resistant to change because they're, you know, the unknown is what makes fear, right? Yeah. So people are afraid of what that could mean instead of embracing the possibilities of what this new thing can bring and how can I bring what I have to that mm -hmm. he just naturally went into that it yeah. just became part of what he did whereas other people were like no this is bad this is different this is yeah so well and and you think of classical the actual word means you know from the past, retro old yeah. Yeah. yeah so why would you want to bring that into you know the 21st century whereas like when um ellie played the black pink song for me she thought I was going to go nuts and I was going to be like, wow, what are they doing? They're taking a list and they're making it into a K-pop song. <laughs> and actually, I loved it yeah. for the very reason that I said. My kids and kids all around this school are walking around singing La Campanella. Yeah. So and they you, all want to learn Have you it. tied it in with all of them now? Have you, have, you, have you connected the dots for them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Good job. Ellie, Ellie knew because she studied with the Royal Conservatory as well, right? Oh, the Royal Conservatory actually named one of their schools the Glenn Gould school sure yes and then re more recently the oscar peterson school oh nice yes okay so hi everyone this is my last time jumping in i promise actually trying to record a one hour episode there was so much to talk about we discovered that it was actually more like two hours so what we're going to do is we're going to stop the episode here at this point and we're gonna come back to it next week uh, in our last episode, episode 8, uh, which can be found on Anchor and, of course, on YouTube, we had mentioned that we were going to have a discussion of Fanny Mendelssohn and Felix Mendelssohn. 
we will come back to that topic as well as the many other ideas that we've discussed. But for next week's episode, episode 10, it'll be part two of the Is Everything a Remix episode. We really hope you're enjoying listening or watching, and we hope you'll join us again in the next episode. If you are enjoying, please remember to hit the like and subscribe buttons or to leave us a comment on any one of the platforms where our mind on music is available. We appreciate your listening and we appreciate your feedback. Thanks again, everyone. All the best until next time. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Good night.